Welcome to Peace Out, the classical music podcast where each episode we discuss different pieces of music in hopes to kind of whittle down some of the many, many recordings to choose from. And along the way, we get to discuss a little bit of the history and theory behind it and hopefully have a little fun. Or at least a little fun for me. And today, the piece that we are going to be looking at is going to be Samuel Barber's Piano Concerto Opus 38, originally premiered on uh, September 24th, 1962, with soloist John Browning at the piano and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A fun little note is that it was actually commissioned by G. Shermer, which, I mean, if you played music or, you know, uh, you probably recognize their music books. They're always the yellow ones that just about you know, everything is published in. Usually quite affordable as well. And another fun factoid, September 24th is also my birthday, which is maybe why this could be like one of my favorite, not just piano concertos, but pieces ever. Now, I wouldn't be that superficial now, would I? Hmm. But before getting too much off topic, let's kind of go circle back to the beginning. Who is Samuel Barber? According to Joseph Machlis, in uh, his Introduction to Contemporary Music, Samuel Barber is classified as an American Romantic, along with, you know, other names such as like Howard Hansen or uh, Virgil Thompson. Also probably names that um, you don't know, um, other than Howard Hansen. I, I, I wasn't too familiar with the other one. But the reason that he's considered, like, this American romantic is, is that Barber was conservative um, by nature, especially among American composers. He um, definitely was not afraid for um, to yield to, you know, just melodic writing as a whole and while he did use 20th century composing techniques and some experimental techniques um he was just not afraid to let the melody speak for itself and would oftentimes choose simplicity over complexity music for him was a search for deeply poetic ideas and a lot of his music, while, as I just said, uses those um, contemporary techniques, um, also searched to be accessible and deeply expressive. It is. Um, it should be noted that he kind of had this lyricism and melodic tendencies since a very young age. His aunt was um, an operatic contra-alto, Louise Homer, and Barber would have been exposed to a lot of that kind of music, that lyrical-sounding music. It is also cool to note 
that when he went to the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, um, not only did he study composition of piano, but also voice. And, you know, when he was young, he actually made recordings of some of his own works and gave several recitals as a baritone. And while some of the works of Barber are the most performed um, modern American works that one hears, the Piano Concerto itself is one that I always feel um, I just don't get to hear quite enough on the concert stage. So let's just go ahead and jump right into the piece as a whole. As stated before, the piece uh, was premiered by pianist John Browning, and actually goes a little bit further than that. The piece was specifically composed for John Browning and his technique. Samuel Barber actually asked um, Browning uh, to kind of like, you know, to, to play for him to get an idea of the composers that he was strongest at, you know, just to so that he could tailor something more towards what Browning could achieve on the piano. And of course, Browning responded by uh, telling him that his four biggest composers that he was best at was Rachmaninoff, Bach, Mozart, and Chopin. Which um, almost seems like a little cliche for a mid-century romantic pianist. And in fact, it is. But of course, Barber took this into consideration. And while none of it is overt... Um, you can hear shades of influences from the composers that Browning said that he was uh, best at playing. Luckily for us, uh, John Browning recorded this concerto several times. One of the earliest recordings is with the Cleveland Orchestra with George Zell conducting, and then later with uh, Leonard Slatkin um, and the St. Louis uh, Symphony. And one of the biggest things that we notice in the Browning recordings is a level of rhythmic precision. But for me, it's easy to keep talking about this stuff. I get so excited for this piece. I just love it. So let's actually just jump right in and start listening to uh, John Browning's performance itself. From his 1964 recording, we're going to hear the opening of the work, which starts with um, the, a piano cadenza, of all things. And it's going to present the melodic material that's going to be spun through the whole work before the orchestra jumps right in. The music itself is very hot-headed. The first bit of melodic material that we're going to get is very declamatory, and then the next two are going to be more rhythmic in nature. And this is how Barber himself actually describes the music of his concerto. <laughs> Thank you. 
listening to that part, you can hear all the elements that are going to further be expanded on through the course of the first movement. Another little fun factoid is um, when asked about the music of Barber, uh, pianist Vladimir Horowitz, who had premiered his piano sonata, Barber's piano sonata to great success, was asked, how difficult was it? And of course, Vladimir Horowitz said, uh, it's about it's about as difficult as the uh, Chopin B minor sonata. On the surface, this is kind of a blasé, you know, flippant response. But that totally ignores just how fiendishly difficult the Chopin B minor sonata can be. But of course, why are we talking about Chopin here? This is this is about Barber. And that goes back to that idea of shades of influence in the music. In our next clip, um, which is going to be from the first movement still, and from John Browning's uh, second um, recording of the concerto in 1991 with the St. Louis Symphony, uh, we're going to hear some of that shades of influence of Chopin. And as stated before, it's not overt. You know, it is more modern more chromatic for sure, but you can still hear that bel canto writing style that Chopin was kind of famous for with a singing right-hand melody with a left-hand accompaniment to support it. Of course, the first movement keeps living up to that title that Barbara was given, the American Romantic, in another way, in that the piano and orchestra are antagonists of each other, kind of like in the concertos of the previous two centuries. And they rarely share material together. The movement uh, culminates in a cadenza, as a lot of concertos do, and while it is a relatively short cadenza, only two pages in the score, you can hear the challenges it presents for the pianist. One last time, we can hear uh, John Browning play this in that original 1960s recording. It's such an energetic cadenza as well. It just explodes 
out of the uh, the concerto, the, the movement there, uh, with so much energy. And of course, we could spend more time talking about all the little things in just the first movement alone, but let's not get hung up too there. And there's a couple things we can look at in the other movements as well. You know, and as I said, kind of in you know previous episodes of this, um, it, it's not necessarily about you know being complete in how we're looking at these works just to kind of give an idea for whenever you start doing your own listening and get a chance to hear it yourself the second movement uh, i'm going to pronounce this wrong it's a it's a bit early when recording this and um, i've only had one cup of coffee so uh, a little bit of understanding and forgiveness please um the canzone moderato it's a nice lyrical slow movement and we begin to hear more shades of influence. You know, when when we mentioned before that Brown talked about his four biggest composers, Bach was one of those names. And in the early part of this movement, you can hear that influence of Bach a little bit as we get a very lyrical melody that's essentially only made up of four notes. Uh, that's really only four notes long. And kind of... Um, accompanies itself so when listening for a little bit of that here is a recording of the jazz pianist Keith Jarrett Keith Jarrett recorded this uh, concerto live in 1984, and in some ways it kind of goes to some of the problem of the concerto in its place in the the standard repertoire for pianists. Of course, there is the uh, the the John Browning recording that we've listened to parts of that was recorded in the 60s, and then of course again his one in 1991. But in the 30 years in between that, you know, give or take, um, there's really not many big-name soloists or people rushing to record the piece. Samuel Barber himself said of the work, I've always had a bit of a problem with the piece. It's a little too nakedly emotional, too. Too performative. A work that, unlike the violin and cello concertos, need an extraordinary interpretation to be truly convincing. What was Barber worried about here? Was he just feeling the pressure, you know, and just kind of revealing, like, his inner struggles? Was um, he worried about how he was perceived? In that, was he worried about being perceived old-fashioned? Ned, um... Roram, who was a colleague of Barber, wrote an article about him in uh, 1982 and had this to say about um, the composer. Think back to the man himself. Is Apollonian a creature who ever stopped chatter on entering a room? Yet, with on occasion, 
the cutting manners that only those born rich can get away with or think they can. Somehow I feel this is a good apt description of this concerto on the whole. Combining both, you know, the unpredictable, uh, the neurotic even, with uh, refinement and elegance. Some of these influences can be found more in the orchestral writing, as is the case with the second movement and uh, the little shades of Rachmaninoff that we can kind of hear. And that was from the 2002 recording um, from pianist Stephen Prutzman and conductor um, Marin Alsop. And the piano will take over from there. Um, also in a passage that still sounds reminiscent of Rachmaninoff a little bit. But the challenging part here for the pianist is actually that the melody is passed forth between the hands. And so what the pianist has to do is make it sound like one singing line that's played all on one hand, but somehow be passing it back and forth, all while there's just like a quick flurry of notes kind of going on underneath. Uh, for this one, we're going to hear this played uh, wonderfully on the recording done by Elizabeth Joy Rowe. I just love the way that she is able to bring out the more romantic qualities in her playing of this piece. And that was just one of the technical challenges found in this work, going once again back to uh, John Browning. Um, Barber was really fascinated with, um, when hearing him play and discussing piano and stuff with him, with things that... Browning found difficult. Um, a couple of those things being th like uh, six played in the hands, but going in opposite directions and uh, hand crossings and 
just things like that. And he kind of became obsessed with them and just wanted to put them all in the music itself. Though he may have made the music a bit too difficult because initially Browning was like, whoa, don't think I can play this. Of course, Barber was kind of whatever, but he went and asked uh, Vladimir Horowitz about it too, who premiered his piano sonata, who was also kind of like, nah, I don't know. I don't think I could play this either. And wondered how Barber had been coming up with uh, these ideas or thought they were playable. And it turns out Barber was just playing them at half speed. Of course, when uh, looking at this work as a whole, you know, and we kind of see the role of the piano and orchestra, you know, the first movement, um, as I kind of was kind of loosely defining it by that and antagonistic relationship found in, uh, you know, previous uh, piano concerto models between piano and orchestra and the second movement taking on a lot of uh, vocal qualities vocal music qualities the third movement is if anything kind of a synthesis uh it is in an odd time signature it's a five um five eight i believe or um and it is pretty relentless with that throughout the whole movement and what we find is the piano and orchestra beginning to back each other up and working together a bit of the introduction once again from the Stephen Prutzman uh, Marin Alsop recording of the uh, concerto. We will listen for just a little bit longer to hear that orchestra come back in and kind of hear how they work together. And you can hear the pounding ostinato underneath that is also relentless. And um, that kind of just kind of keeps going forward through the movement. It is pretty consistent on that front. It is furiously fast and devilishly sounding. It is savage. But other than how it sounds, it does follow a modified rondo form, which is, you know, pretty standard for a piano concerto. But the concerto comes to a close with what I feel is one of the most exciting finales in um, piano concertos or, you know, this kind of music in general. And I think to finish it up, we're going to once again hear that a first recording of John Browning.
And what an exhilarating finale that is. It gets me pumped every single time I hear it. And of course, um, there, there was a lot of elements that we skipped over in this one. This piece is packed dense with really cool tidbits, like connections to serialism and Schoenberg that we skipped over, uh, mostly just to kind of focus on the cool piano parts, which, well, you know, um, I'm a pianist, so I'm going to tend to lean that way anyway, but one can just like continue to just deep dive into this work and find a bunch of uh, cool stuff to listen for. And speaking of listening, we actually listened through several uh, recordings today, um, parts of them. Obviously, the two from John Browning with, you know, 30 years apart between them, essentially. Uh, Keith Jarrett, Elizabeth Joy Rowe, and Stephen Prutzman. Uh, and I was kind of thinking to myself, which one do I like best? If, you know, if I had to recommend just one of these recordings... And if I had to, which it's actually kind of surprisingly difficult, I would probably still have to recommend that first recording by John Browning. You know, the piece was written for him, written around him, and he kind of owns it in a way um, that is unique. And it's really cool that we kind of get to hear it from the pianist that the piece was designed for. Now, a surprisingly close second was Elizabeth Joy Rose recording, um, which I like more and more each time I listen to it and really love how it can kind of play up some of the more romantic tendencies found from the American Romantic. So, now that you've listened to me talk for uh, about 20 minutes or so, Maybe it's time to go out and enjoy listening to this piece yourself. I would totally love to hear from you if you've listened to it or you hear anything that I skipped, you know, didn't talk about that you would love to talk about it. I love getting nerdy about this stuff. It's probably a bit of a problem. Anyway, thank you for listening. This has been Jeffrey Hampton, and you have been listening to Peace Out.